This is Raising a Sane and Successful Teen, an innovative guide to becoming an awesome parent, read by the author, Marianne Majori. Chapter 10, Education. You are the first and most important educator of your child. You should never relinquish this rigorous and often delightful tasks. Changes are coming rapidly at all of us, changes in culture, in technology, in economics. With all this whirling around you and your young person, you need to keep as calm and supportive a course as you possibly can. Your child's mind, body, and spirit depend upon it. The key task of parenting is to make your teen both self-assured and self-reliant. By the time your child enters the teen years, hopefully they have a base of self-assurance. Now what you need to do is educate them and see that they are educated by others in a way that makes them self-reliant. Make your home a haven for yourself and your kid. Education requires action, thought, and silence. Silence is essential. Make your home a place of peace and quiet and make sure there are times of deep, lovely silence. Night or day, limit, 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 cell phone use, especially when your young person is with you. No cell phones at the table. No cell phone or video game use after a prescribed time at night. No cell phone use in the car when you are driving. You are not a chauffeur. You are a beloved family member, and car travel means we are all in this together. No texting to some better or more interesting someone while you two are together. The same goes for games and movies. Limit their use, too. The mind has to rest to grow, and it cannot rest while being overstimulated. If your teen does not comply, record demerits on a piece of paper on the fridge, and when they don't comply a certain specified number of times, take them off their cell phone plan or off your family plan. Sure, it may cost a bit more money, but your child's intellect and social ability are at risk here. You're in charge, so stay in charge with these requirements. With limited cell phone use, you may notice that your child is more attentive to you and more able to concentrate on complex tasks like studying, reading, learning a craft, or conversing with others. They may become more interesting socially and more interested in you, in the family, in the world, and in their own lives. What's happening to our schools? Schools currently are in a quandary. Trying to please everyone, they often please few. Ancient educational methods are in conflict with young people's access to vast quantities of media. These media, as I have said, have their attendant distractions. That is the downside of such high-tech innovations. But these media also offer an enormous range of resources for self-education. I delighted in this new opportunity myself recently. Not long ago, I noticed my algebra skills were so rusty I was ashamed of myself. Simple copulation, computations had deserted me. I took an Algebra 1 course on the internet with a brilliant and entertaining teacher who brought me back up to speed. It was fun. It was easy. It was free. I did it on my own time. My son, who had recommended the course, said he did the same thing to improve his calculus skills in engineering school. Many students I know are clamoring for the same privilege to self-educate, and many schools are hearing and responding with encouragement. As far as modern education goes, Thomas Paine said it best for me over 200 years ago. Every person of intellect becomes his or her own teacher. Classroom learning with teachers lecturing and students sitting at rows of desks may be excellent for some kids, but more and more we are finding schools are creating small groups of students who meet individually with brilliant teacher specialists. 
The students then work alone with these small pods of their peers on projects that extend their knowledge of natural science, mathematics, computers, writing, history, politics, and languages, and often accomplish their work with great excitement and terrific speed. Many school systems have developed half-day programs that permit young people to be in class for half the day and work in the afternoons. With many high schools graduating less than 50% of their senior classes, necessity demands that we look at the way we define and frame education in our country as soon as humanly possible. <clears throat> and why not? The American education system that educated most of us adults was designed in the late 19th and early 20th century to expand the country's school system to finally reach every child with some kind of uniformity of method and result. The goal was to integrate, socialize, and normalize large numbers of urban, rural, and immigrant youth into our society. For decades, the former free sensation was pretty much the same. A single woman or man commanded the classroom, concentrating on a short list of subjects revolving, hopefully, around the list of several liberal arts implemented in the medieval period of European history. This list was, in turn, based on a form developed as far back as the Greek philosopher Pythagoras in the late 6th century BCE. Many schools in rural areas offered the most rudimentary education in any case. Students still learned, and many of our nation's greatest leaders were taught this way. But many remote schools were not designed to go much beyond the fourth grade. Urban schools were often much better, especially since highly educated young men, women and men from certain ethnic or religious groups who were denied positions in universities were forced to teach in high schools, and they often did so brilliantly. Both my parents, educated in New York City high schools, were well-versed in history, literature, and mathematics with only high school educations. Their high school teachers were all Jews, many of them with masters and even PhDs, to their credit, who had been denied seats on the faculties of the local quote, finer, end quote, colleges. With the end of the Second World War, the United States became one of two dominant world empires, and things started to change in almost all aspects of society, including education. International political unrest, as well as population growth, meant upheavals in the system. Fear of Soviet Russia sparked a hunt against liberal strongholds. The arts and education took a terrible beating as Congress harassed and jailed many of our leaders in these fields. The military budget, enormous during the World War, became even bigger as we committed ourselves to an unending series of smaller wars that were referred to as incursions or police actions. To keep expenditures down, governments large and small looked at capping budgets in softer areas. Over the next 30 years, health care, the arts, and education were constantly under fire. Labor unions took beating after beating. In the end, while schools burgeoned with waves of new students from our population explosion and college students were discouraged from becoming teachers, it was considered to be a wasted effort with no dignity in sight. The saying, those who can do, those who can't teach, became the smug axiom of a culture that had moved toward rampant anti-intellectualism. Still, the system kept growing, and leaders, eager to give form to the formless, began to make a specialty of measurement, and so the swarm of standardized tests were born. Wasting countless hours of both students' and teachers' time, these tests are both hated and generally useless. They do not give a clear idea of some of the key skills necessary to success. Teamwork, adaptability, creative thinking, perseverance, or even intellectual depth. Gradually, the inevitable happened. Students started dropping out of the system like flies. 
Currently, even those who make it through high school often look back at the experience with horror. In many high schools, half the senior class does not graduate. The overwhelming majority of dropouts, boys. Girls, pressured by an image-based culture, get better grades in high school and succeed better in a college, but there is much psychological cost. Over one in four teenage girls in my country have a suicide plan. Many suffer from physical ailments. Their future is not easy. Women in the U.S. still make only about 73 and 78% of the wages men make during the same jobs. With widespread birth control and the pervasive media youth culture, many young men do not want to marry at all or do not want to marry as early as their fathers did. <clears throat> Meanwhile, for young women, the biological clock goes tick, tick, tick. The future looks grim. What can we do? Plenty. Looking to the future, there will need to be many systemic and cultural changes, the subject for another book. Meanwhile, let's start with your son or daughter and look at ways we can make the world better for them. What can do we do for our boys? History and folklore have given us the map. All we have to do is follow it. The boy of long ago and the boy of today need adventure, whether adventure of the mind or adventure of the body, and many need both. For most boys, it is extremely difficult to spend long periods of time under other people's direction. They have been horsing around in schools since schools began. They like conflict, whether it's debating with a teacher or trouncing their best friend on the sports field. This energy is what psychologist Carl Jung called animus. While many girls have the same wonderful competitive energy as well, boys tend to have more animus than girls, and they have more of it than schools can hold. As frustrating as it is, boys often don't do very well in high school because it demands of them a sedentary, stationary day when what they desire is a day of movement, of action, and interaction. High schools have not changed appreciably, and yet modern boys have more access of knowledge of the outer world, grow more and more restless under the old system. For centuries, most people in the U.S. lived in an agrarian or small-town culture, Boys were raised as their father's helpers and heirs to the family farm or shop. At the turn of the 19th and into the 20th century, 80% of all Americans lived such agrarian or rural environments away from the big cities. The Second World War saw the beginning of a reversal. As U.S. enterprise and power moved to the cities, the youth of the country moved to where the action was. Soon, 20% of all Americans lived in agrarian and rural areas and 80% lived in cities. The old way of life for boys no longer centered around their fathers. Now it's centered around their boss. As high technology propelled travel and communications to unheard of speeds and unions suffered tone-crushing defeat after another, one crushing after, defeat after another, a man's job took over his life. Americans began to work harder and longer. The post-war economy boomed in the 50s, although not for all and not for long. As inflation hit and rolled into recession in the 60s and 70s, men made more money and worked longer hours, but the money did less. The women's movement of the 70s and the flagging economy urged women back into the workforce. Women started competing with men and families increasingly dependent on two incomes felt the stress. Men, unused to childcare and household chores, kept the burden on women, forcing women to the second shift coming home from work and doing the equivalent of another day's work filled with childcare, cooking, laundry, cleaning, homework, etc. Divorce became rampant. Most divorces meant the children spent considerably less time in contact with their fathers. This was a tragedy for children and for fathers. 
It was a particular tragedy for boys who now were left with less and less male mentoring. Often, when a tragedy becomes commonplace, it is gradually seen as a norm, but it wasn't a norm for boys. They became restive, rebellious. Many became depressed. Many sank into drugs or alcohol. With high technology, games, internet, phones, many drifted into another world. Schools didn't adapt, boys withdrew. I admit this is a string of generalizations, but the curious thing about generalizations is that they very often are true. How else do we explain the phenomenal withdrawal of boys from the education system? How do we explain the high rate of second and third generation divorces? And what do we say of the significant number of never married men in this country? Moreover, with the terrible tragedies of the Vietnam War and the Afghan and Iraqi wars, the last bastion of male training, the U.S. military, lost much of its reputation. And with this loss, a place where young men could learn to be men among older men became more a, a place of economic and educational last resort. Meanwhile, love seemed to have become rarer. Rape rates, always high in the U.S., started to increase. As boys without mentoring convinced each other that drugging a young woman and raping her was acceptable male fun. The smartphone introduced texting as a dating strategy. Romantic comedies featured hapless, overweight, 20-something males actually getting the fabulous girl. But the dream was silly, and everyone knew it. Whatever became the male teen response to tiresome or harsh realities. It is what it is became another. They're disaffected, yelled countless journal articles. They're fragile, warned others. That's the bad news. The good news is that if you know and listen to your kids and guide them through the tough waters, they have a chance of overcoming catastrophe on every level. And if you don't, they won't. Especially with boys, watch to see that their education works for them. If you are a dad, pay special attention to what you do well in the male world and offer it to your kid, whether it's fishing or baseball, budgeting or career. Take your kid with you to places in your world when they are in their early teens. Talk to them about what matters to you. Lead them into the company of other men who can help them, guide them, and perhaps eventually employ them. If you're the mom, stop fretting and start teaching your son your own skills. If you have a sport, share it. If you have activities that reward you, let them into that too. Teach your son how women think and what matters to you as a woman and to women in general. When you watch TV or movies together, show them your response to the stories or the predicaments. Both parents should make sure your son knows how to cook, do laundry, sue the baby, create a personal budget, and take care of things once they leave you. Don't be afraid to show them how you organize life, including your finances. If you're a mother with business ability, share that too. With school, make sure you share what makes sense about it. What is English Lit for? Didn't it help you become a better writer and to speak about life situations more deeply? Let them know how some or all of it worked positively for you. Why study algebra, they might ask. Explain how it molds the mind to comprehend numbers, logic, and the balance of ideas as well as numbers. If the school is not good for your kid because of poor teaching or inadequate facilities, look around for others. You are not alone in seeking a good education for your kid. There are so many public alternative schools sprouting up, many of them project-based, giving kids an opportunity to work on studies that integrate writing, history and math, for example, or science research and analysis and art. 
If these programs are not available, make sure that you guide your young man to resources in your community, art museums, science expos, business fairs, where they can see what is going on in the world and begin to see how they might fit into different worlds. Don't forget to commend the good in them and in their choices and tell them why, especially in their formative social relationships. Your friend David seems like a good guy. It seems like he is a good listener. Or Ben is fun to talk with, isn't he? Approval can speak volumes. It can direct your son in positive directions that will reap positive effects. Approval will also help him relate to people better and lead him to those who he can collaborate with, relax with, and be egged on to his next step of development. In all cases, do not give up. Keep educating yourself on how your child learns and what he might need to learn next to advance from an energetic and rewarding childhood into an energetic and rewarding manhood. What can be done for our girls? It is often good to announce a bias early in a conversation. So regarding the girls, let me reveal my bias right away. I am a strong proponent of girls' high schools and women's colleges, and I am not alone. The Girl Scouts and the Seven Sisters Women's Colleges have consistently produced vast majority of female leaders in this country in every sphere of our country's life. When girls and young women are together, separated from boys and young men, they gain greater strength, better grades, and achieve more in the larger world than girls consistently raised in a co-educational system. The myth of cat-fighting women destroying each other, so popular in movies, needs to be set aside. The fact is that girls together and out of the sphere of boys often do much better than girls in the social maelstrom of co-education. Educating girls as girls and women as women has had a tremendous fortifying effect on females on all levels of our society. Sincerely consider finding and enrolling your maturing daughter in a girl's high school and look expansively at women's colleges, too. Don't think you can afford it? Call the school and find out how hefty their scholarships are. Many gender-specific institutions have healthy endowments. All test scores and satisfaction measurements of girls and teachers show that educating girls and young women separately from boys and young men really boosts girls' achievement levels, and many are much more satisfied without the pressure of male-female socializing happening all day, every day, seven days a week. If an all-girls school is not an object, option, then be vigilant in all your advocacy of your daughter. Watch and listen carefully, and if you learn of any sexism in her school, go directly to the source and tell them you will not tolerate it. Schools do not want trouble, and if you become a vocal supporter of your young person and her rights, you will find many allies, parents, and often other educators. Encourage your daughter to take courses that will challenge her. If she has difficulty, do not hesitate to find private tutorial help for her. Many community colleges have lists of student tutors who are young, hip, and inexpensive enough for you to get your daughter the support she needs to try some of the hard stuff. Call the Community College Career Center and ask to interview a few candidates and choose the best one. Stay clear of rabid programs that prepare your kid exclusively for SAT exams. You want your daughter to learn what she needs to learn, not enlist in some lockstep march toward more tests. Teen life is rough enough without activities that will find her with more worry and less free time to relax and recharge. Encourage your daughter to socialize with healthy groups or clubs that are fun and which bring her into contact with possible friends in a relaxed way. 
Is there a good youth group in your area attached to the local recreation center or church? Help her get there and back so she doesn't end up in a car full of strangers. Offer to chaperone on trips so that the program can thrive. When you do participate as a chaperone or driver, be sure to stay out of her way while you do this so she doesn't feel spied upon or judged. Teach her to take care of her body and to enjoy that caring for herself, as women have done for centuries. Spend some quality time with your daughter doing things she likes to do that make her feel lovely and loved. A simple trip to pick up a new t-shirt can be a pleasant and welcome journey for both of you. While you're out with her, offer to buy some of her own toiletries, her own washcloth and towel or favorite soap, new toothbrush or hand cream and sanitary products. You will be teaching her you care about her and that you want her to enjoy taking care of herself. Showing her rather than telling works on so many levels. When you go work out or to simply take a walk, invite her to go with you. Even if she declines, take it with good grace. The lesson is still there. We women take good care of ourselves physically. Don't forget medical exams. For kids up to 18, you are in charge of making medical appointments, taking her there, and paying for her medical care. After 18, teach her how to make her yearly checkup appointment. And when she goes, offer to go with her the first time or at least accompany her to the office. If sex is in the office, in the offing, help her choose proper birth control. Don't leave her pregnancy and disease protection to the high school sex education class. What is she reading, thinking, viewing? Dip into her influences. After she has gone to a movie with her friends and tells her you li she liked it, tells you she liked it, make the effort to go to it yourself and then talk with her about it with deep respect for her observations and responses to it. If she liked it and you didn't, listen to what she says about it and then give the same kind of critique you would share with a beloved friend. I can see what you mean about the acting. It was excellent, as you say. I did think the whole movie was a bit too long. In all cases, make your time with your daughter about her interests, not about yours. That's what your friends are for. Because mother-daughter stuff can get hectic, don't forget to ask your friends to act as doulas to midwife her move into adulthood and away from you. In all cases, teach her by word and example how to date and how to fall in love. For both moms and dads and any other loving adult members of your household, make sure your beloved young person feels respected and protected. Set the parameters around her clearly so she is well treated. Young men or women who come to pick her up should come to the front door. No honking in the street for your kid. If this happens, it is not only appropriate but mandatory that either you or your partner go to the honking young person and explain, Hi, I think you're here to pick up our daughter. We have a rule that all people who come to pick her up come to the front door, ring the bell, and come in to meet us. So come on in and visit with us before you two go out. Smile and welcome your visitor into your home. If she is going any distance outside of your house for an evening, make sure that your teen girl has plenty of money in her purse so she can phone for a cab wherever she is. Give her $100 or so and perhaps have a credit card with a simple allowable balance and make sure she understands these represent a loan for emergencies. If she finds herself in a bad part of town with a bad date or her car breaks down, she can always call a cab or AAA and get the heck out of there. Let us be there for all of our teens. In every case and situation, make sure your young person is well-fed and well-watered. Keep delicious and nutritious food in the house. From the time they are youngsters, help them learn what food gives them energy, what foods can help them relax and ease tension. Check out what is being served in the school cafeteria and from school vending machines and start a letter writing campaign if healthy improvement is necessary. 
See that your young people, male and female, are well rested by watching their daily rhythms and helping them get in sync with them. Everyone knows that teens are growing and therefore need much more sleep than most adults. Many schools are now starting the school day later out of respect for this. See if you can form a movement in this direction by speaking up at PTA meetings or by gathering like-minded adults to approach the principal and the district superintendent. Engage your child in this kind of activism as well. This can be good practice for creating productive change. Children created the movement to end smoking in public spaces, ending junk food in the school cafeteria, or extending sleep time for high school students may be the next movement your daughter or son can create for themselves and the generations after them. What should education be? Education should be many things to many people. It should be the focus of our national efforts. It should be broad enough to serve the classical intellectual as well as the gifted mechanic. It should be energetic enough to encourage innovation while preserving a realistic sense of the past, including its accomplishments, disasters, and achievements. Education should be full of excitement. That's what it should be. So when you look at a school, here's what you're looking for. The place should have an air of energy and purpose. In a good school, the rooms will be quiet with the intensity of real work. Kids will be intent on working, listening, or talking, and it will sound like something important is going on. There will be a positive feeling of getting things done. Here's what it should not be. It should not be a playpen for, play for spoiled brats set on disrupting learning with a quest for continuous stream of stimuli. You know a good school when you find it because people are involved in working or moving with purpose. And although no high school can be silent, the school has something to offer the growing mind, body, and spirit is relatively serene. People are working at something they care about. They are engrossed in rewarding effort. They are doing something that has meaning, that they respect, and that is built on the concept of respect for them and their skills. Education is make, meant to make every person into their own teacher, as Tom Paine said. The gift of schooling is that the resources and the social life for a teenager are in one place. The curriculum must give an idea of how all specs, aspects of the world work, which means it should offer a study of the natural world, as well as the people-made one, and it should honor both. It should examine basic concepts of how physical, economic, social, and politi political systems work and should encourage a consideration of differences where there are some and complementarities where there are some. It should never limit discussion of the current situation and its implications. In many schools, the decision to connect the classroom with the outside world has had powerful, positive results. Next step. Time is running short, and my editor is waiting. So in my classic directive style, let me say that there is a lot we can do for our kids in school. Here is a draft list of, that, of what I think each of us can start to move on, solo or in groups. Elevating teaching. Teaching used to be a calling, a spiritual command to do good. Let us make educating our young a great and honorable profession again. Taking a page from great education systems, such as that of Finland, let us seek out the finest minds, the most creative intellects, and train them to become a kind of elite like doctors and lawyers. Let us pay them as well as we pay our doctors and lawyers. Then step back and watch kids blossom. Another idea, designing approaches that satisfy the needs of boys and girls. 
Let us look upon gender learning differences as exciting challenges instead of annoying burdens. Let us create opportunities for our girls to blossom and for our boys to grow as well. Whether we create gender-specific classes or design student-driven, project-based learning, or both, let us give more respect for the different ways boys and girls learn. A third idea, making use of community expertise. Let us create special certificates for leaders in business, science and technology, arts, design, human services, psychology, law, politics, banking, computers, media, nonprofit development, writing, and other great paths to become visiting experts in our schools. The successful in so many fields can share their genius in their crafts and in their networks so our students will be groomed in knowledge and connections that can lead them to meaningful work. A fourth idea, cutting back on standardized testing. Let us end standardized testing or use it only every second or third year of school and let us limit the testing to one week and one week only in the school year. Let us bring back essay exams and explore more useful ways of measurement like moving to where your kid will be like the Johnson O'Connor test, excuse me, that discover innate abilities that our young people can revel in and follow into meaningful occupations. Fifth idea beefing up paid internship opportunities. Let us also train a cadre of new guidance counselors and parents who can shape course choices and who can introduce students to internships that will give them real life training. In this way, schools and parents in collaboration can help our young people explore different fields and opportunities and students can see what work they are best suited for and can choose advanced training or education that will suit them best for these desired paths. Another idea, bringing back art, music, theater, dance, and playtime. Students have, studies have consistently shown over decades of research that students who have arts and play activities as an integral part of their school lives consistently do better in all kinds of thinking, including hard sciences and mathematics. Studies also show these programs encourage creativity and teamwork so essential in their later adult lives. So let's take two steps back and revive those lost courses of study and watch our kids expand in them. Another idea, redesigning the community college system for better results. With budget cuts, many students cannot easily get into the courses they need for an AA within two years. They languish in the system often for years. Let us make sure the requisite courses are available to them. At the same time, let us persuade quality colleges to accept students who have a proven two-year success record in community college, even if they have not completed a two-year associate's degree. Let us try both strands and see if both methods work, or if one is more successful than another. There are countless other ways that we can help our young to both rewarding and useful educational experiences. Let us keep thinking, doing, and improving the education of our young people. They deserve it, most certainly, and our future depends upon it. In the meantime, for our boys and for our girls, make it a, pri a priority to be sure our kid is in a decent school. 
This is critical. Your young person should not be in a school that has a high number of dropouts. They should not be somewhere that is violent. If your local school is merely mediocre, not well ranked on state scores, with limited course choices or a bad rep among teenagers themselves, consider whether you can make real efforts in the school to make real improvements. While your kid is still in middle school, visit the principal and find out what plans and funding are available to change in the high school from mediocre to great. If that visit proves the situation is hopeless, consider moving to where your kid will be better educated. Many, many parents are doing this, renting out their houses or leaving their beloved apartment to a different, often smaller venue for the sake of their kids' futures. Or consider shifting your kid to a better district without moving. Many school districts will allow transfers. Call the district you are considering and find out. Offer to become the volunteer of the year if they take your kid. If that doesn't look possible, then seriously consider private school. Cannot afford it? Look to scholarship help and help from grandparents or relatives who want to see your kid thrive. Don't leave this important step toward your kid's happiness to chance. Thank you for listening. If you have a struggling millennial, feel free to reach out. You can reach us at launch.5for5.org or call me, Marianne Majori, at 415-577-6627. That's 415-577-6627. We would love to hear from you. Take care until then.